You're listening to Let's Think On It, featuring Dr. Mark Westfall. Hello and welcome to Let's Think On It. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Westfall. I'm a psychiatrist in Birmingham, Alabama, and this podcast is about anything and everything human. So I'm talking with a friend the other day, and he tells me about this illusionist coming to town as part of this art and medicine program. I had no knowledge the program existed, um, so I thought I'd check it out. Turns out there's an illusionist named Kevin Spencer who's coming to town for a few days, and, and he's going to put on a performance at the Alice Stevens Center. Now, the Alice Stevens Center is a performing arts center on the campus of UAB. UAB is the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And UAB is a huge health system in the city of Birmingham and a referral system for the region. UAB has joined the Alice Stevens Center in starting a program called Art and Medicine, where they bring art into the treatment setting, transforming the patient experience to something more than just treatment, uh, making it more human. This was very appealing to me. Being in, in the medical field and being a psychiatrist, I, I've had the opportunity to observe patients in the treatment setting and contemplate what it's like to go through that experience as a human, taken away from your family and into a sterile environment. You know, I think about the history of medicine when we started, I say we, when medicine started, doctors went to the patient's home in their setting, got to see a glimpse of their life while treating the patient, treating them in the environment that they're comfortable in, treating them around their family members. Obviously, that's difficult today with the science that's come along and the, the high technology that we utilize in the hospital system and the, and the sterile environment we need for helping treat patients. But I was fascinated by the program that uh, Alice Stevens Center and UAB has started to help transform the experience for the patient. Now, when I say they bring art to the treatment setting or to the patient, I don't mean simply putting a piece of art on the wall, although that may be part of transforming the environment, but they are bringing the art form and all forms to the patient, the visual arts, the listening arts, the interactive arts, They're helping patients use their creativity and imagination to transform the setting they're in to be a more human experience, a more broad and therapeutic experience. So I got to sit down with uh, Kevin Spencer, who's the illusionist that came to town, Kimberly Kirkland, who's director of the Art and Medicine Program, Uh, my co-host, Haley Ingram, who you've heard on some other podcasts before, We enter the interview with Kimberly Kirkland, the director of the Art and Medicine program, telling us a little bit about herself. What I do here, I've been here at the Alice Stevens Center for 15 years, and so I started in education and outreach, and now um, I've really focused in on arts and medicine. And so arts and medicine, it's a partnership between the Alice Stevens Center and UAB Medicine, and our mission is to transform the healing environment and to enhance healing and wellness for patients, our families, and our staff at UAB Hospital. And then we also work with um, some other area partners. So we do some work at Children's Hospital, at uh, Lakeshore Rehab, 
and um, various independent and assisted living facilities, bringing the arts into um, the different environments and, and really um, putting in that, that creative spin on, on wellness. What it may look like is when we go into the hospital, we have eight artists in residence. So they're professional artists. Um, almost all of them have their degree in the art form that they practice. And they are unique in the way that they are incredibly empathetic, compassionate people. They understand that when they go into the healing environment, it's not about them. It's about the people that they are there to work with. And so they might go to a bedside and do um, storytelling if someone has really complex medical issues and can't participate in um, actively creating um, art. They might do storytelling. And then um, one of our artists, she calls herself a story gardener. So that she <laughs> is not only telling stories, but she's engaging those patients. They can then share stories with her connect through some of the different themes of stories that she shares. And also, we know we have fantastic nurses, fantastic doctors and therapists, but they have so many patients to see so that what we also offer, in, in addition to a chance to be creative, but also just a chance to be present in the moment and treat them as they are, as a whole person, not just a collection of symptoms or a diagnosis, but a whole person who's got family who's got a whole lifetime of experiences so we're really looking at um, at meeting some of the needs of their mind body and spirit so yes so we do multiple art forms at the bedside we do a lot of group workshops so we work a lot in the Center for Psychiatric Medicine a lot in the Women and Infant Center with um, moms and dads who have babies in the um, neonatal intensive care unit we teach them how to create um, quilts and all sorts of wonderful things so, so that they get to, to work in a um, kind of a community environment. And then we just do things also in the, um, the space to bring music and, um, and do art installations and things like that. I loved the Halloween costumes, the mothers making the <laughs> Halloween costumes for the infants. That was so beautiful. <laughs> Loved it. Yeah, you saw that online? Yes, I but I saw it that, like right when it was shared. I was like, that is just so special. So Haley's been a frequent co-host with me on podcasts, and you guys have some overlap that we didn't know about till t till the act. I told Haley that we were coming. I was coming to do the show, and she goes, "Oh my gosh." Haley, you work at the Harbor Center, which gives Chil us a little bit Children's of... Children's Harbor. Okay, mm -hmm. what is that? Yes, so Children's Harbor is a nonprofit organization, and we serve seriously and chronically ill children and their families. So um, we're not just patient-centered, we're whole family-centered, because whenever these children are going through these horrific illnesses, it's not just a burden on them, it is very difficult for the entire family and it can be stress on marriages, on grades, um, everything, sleep, health, it causes stress. So basically the Harbor uh, Family Center is located inside Children's Hospital um, and then we've got another location that is at Lake Martin and the Family Center offers uh, counseling, so family and marriage counseling, um, education and career development and transition uh, program, and then activities for the children and their families to take part in together. We've got nap rooms, a laundry, toys to come in and play. It's just kind of a beacon of light for these mm -hmm. people, and it doesn't seem clinical when you go in there. Mm -hmm. And then the um, 
facility at Lake Martin. It's a camp facility, 66 acres, and we offer facilities grants to organizations with disabled populations. Wow, it's spectacular. Cool. All right, so tonight we have at the Al Stevens Center a performance, right? And we have our guest performer here. So, yes. Kimberly, introduce our, our special guest, our the other special yes. guest. <laughs> yes, well, I've had the joy of knowing and working with Kevin Spencer has it been about seven years? I think so. So this is the third time he's been to the Alice Stevens Center and to Birmingham. He performed all three of those times, but we also take him deeper into the community to connect with um, all different areas of health care and healing and wellness. And so I'd love to turn it over to Kevin and, and let him share more with you. Thank you. I, I'm excited to be here. I love working with the Alice Stevens Center. I especially love working with Kimberly. We have a real synergy, I think. We come at this from the same passion and from the same sort of perspective at the power of the arts to really impact the quality of people's lives, not just where we live, but also where we heal. And so I, I come at this pretty from a pretty personal perspective. Uh, when I first got started in my magic career, I was involved in a really bad automobile accident. Uh, I, I woke up in neurological intensive care with a brain injury and a lower spinal cord injury. How old were you? I was 27. So I spent a lot of time in the hospital just kind of regaining all those skills that I'd lost from the accident. And for me, my art form played a very important part in my recovery. Were you already a magician before the accident? I was. Okay. So I or had. Illusion. Do you prefer to be called a magician or illusionist? E either one is okay. fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, either one is fine. Um, I, I, I told my mom when I was five, when I grow up, I'm going to be a magician. I got my first magic set when I was seven, learned all those little tricks, loved every single one of them, carried them to elementary school and junior high school. I worked my way through college doing magic. Really? When I finished college, it was kind of this natural sort of thing of. Of, I, I loved what I was doing and I didn't want you know at, at 21 I didn't want to look back at 40 and go wow I wonder if I could have done that That's so it's a purpose yes so, special. <laughs> so I called my mom and dad and I said so I, I think I'm just gonna be a magician and uh, my family was incredibly supportive uh, so I launched out on this magic career uh, and I did a little you know, research on it. You've won a lot of awards. You, you're pretty good at this. <laughs> we, <laughs> we've done, we've, you know, I think it's that thing when you come at something with a passion, right? Yeah. When it's yeah. what you yeah. love to do. And I love to do this. There's something so incredible about taking your audience on a journey that's really magical and special and allowing them to kind of get outside of themselves and believe that anything is possible. And that's what happens when you're a magician, right? You come in, you sit down, you take your audience on this adventure where they just get to suspend their disbelief for a little bit and just believe that everything that's happening on the stage is real. And there's, a, there's a kind of a, a sense of, of calmness that comes with that. And I think there's also this kind of really sense of camaraderie that happens in the audience. It takes two kinds of people to be a good audience. <laughs> you, you've got to have those one, that one group of people who just wants to go, wow, that was incredible. How did he do that? And then you've got to have that other person that goes, hmm, 
you know what I think? I think that he, when he did his the, hand like the this, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wait a you've got to have both of those. Because if everybody just comes to the show and believes everything that you did, <laughs> where's the fun in that, yeah. right? you got to have that person that at the end of the show is standing in the lobby going, oh, 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 I think this is how it was done. It keeps you improving. <laughs> That's right. It keeps you really challenged. <laughs> and I'm not like, I'm not one of those. I had a, a really awesome teacher. So... Um, a lot of your listeners will not remember this guy. Some of them will. But I studied with a magician named Doug Henning, who was very popular in the 80s and kind of the early 90s. Uh, he was more of a theatrical sort of approach to magic, but he wasn't in the tuxedo and the top hat. He was, you know, very colorful, unicorns and rainbows. And, I mean, he was like the hippie magician, right? <laughs> um, nothing on the stage was ever dark. It was just always this explosion of color that happened on the stage. And and Doug had this kind of idea that he wasn't this, this masterful magician that entered the stage, and now he had this secret that he knew and that he was going to hold that over you, which some magicians do, right? Mm -hmm. You get this feeling that there's a sense of arrogance coming off of some magicians because they know something that you don't know. Right. And Doug was this guy of like, oh, my gosh, come here. Let me show Check you this. Out. this. Right. Check this out because this is really cool. And so I, I think one of the pieces of advice that Doug gave to me was always be yourself because if you're yourself on the stage and, you, and you're doing what you love, people will be attracted to that. And there's not this sense of phoniness that happens. And if you're doing what's, what you love, and if you're being real, it doesn't really make any difference what you're doing on the stage. Or what you're doing in life, really. Or what you're doing in I life. I mean, you can take that lesson a lot of places. Absolutely. And then, you know, and for me, isn't the stage kind of like the way we act out our lives, right? All of us like have a stage somewhere, <laughs> so right? I live my life. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All of our lives are like the stage that we kind of act out. And I just have the really awesome job of getting to do that in front of people. So we did. We traveled all over the world. Um, we got to perform in all 50 states, 38 countries. We oh, saw wow. the world doing, doing magic shows. And um, we were really, really fortunate. We were named 2015 International Magician of the Year, 2009 International Magician of the Year. Uh, six times we were named Performing Arts Entertainers of the Year. And I think a lot of that goes back to this fact that you're, just, you're, you're passionate about what you do and you want to share that with your audience. I retired my show in when? May of 2015. So all that big tractor trailer and the bus and all of that sort of stuff kind of all went away so that I could focus on two things. One, all the magic that I'm going to do like tonight and tomorrow are some of my favorite pieces out of the Big Illusion show without having to have all of the trappings that come with the mm -hmm. Big Illusion show. It's just me. So if the audience doesn't like me, I'm really in trouble because they're just going to look at me for an hour, right? This is what you're stuck with. But it's all of the fun stuff. So I like to be very, you know, when I would when I would do these things where I would bring out this big industrial fan onto the stage or I'd walk through a wall, you would be in the lobby after the show and the people would come up to you and they were going, dude, how did you do that thing with the newspaper? It was right. I saw that on the yeah. internet. So it was yeah. never about this gigantic piece of equipment that you had on the play, on the stage that you paid thirty grand for, right? Yeah. It was never that. It was the eighty-five cent newspaper that you picked up at the grocery store that people are going, "Wow!" But how did you do the newspaper trick? So basically, what I did in twenty fifteen is my wife and I opted to kind of shed all of that 
and to focus on those things that we really love to do, the kinds of magic that centers around the audience and the audience interaction part of it. So it's a pretty, I always feel like when I'm on the stage now that I've just invited these people into my living room. And we just get to talk. More intimate. Yeah, and I get to I get to show you some magic tricks. So when did you start applying it to the the medical field? Is that something you've always done, or I mean, you 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 got into it because of your medical experience? And this week you're here at at UAB, going to a lot of different places in the hospital and 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 interacting with with people. When did that start for you? Was that something since you shut down your show in 2015 or something you've always done? It's something that I've been involved with since my own accident. As a result of my accident, I had an opportunity to collaborate with a number of occupational therapists. And so I went back to all of my magic books and I found like 50, 60 simple little magic tricks that I felt could be used in a therapeutic setting. Because the one thing about being a long-term client in therapy is, is not so much the fact that it's long, because you you know you're in for the long haul, or that it's even frustrating, because you know there are going to be moments that are frustrating. The hard part is about staying motivated and engaged being a long-term client. Yep. And when you're doing things that, that and I say this in the nicest, most respectful way to therapists, but when you're doing things that don't seem intentional to you, let's put these pegs in the board, let's put these marbles in the glass, let's steward the spider walk up the wall with our fingers. Those don't seem very intentional. So there's, it's hard to get excited and motivated about that, right? But if I can take all of those movements that you have to do in your therapy, and I can teach you a magic trick that you can then show to someone, that now is cool. it's motivating, now it's intentional. And you're not just putting marbles in the glass for the sake of working on your fine motor dexterity, mm -hmm. but now I can teach you how to link paper clips in the air off of a dollar bill, and it's absolutely incredible, and people will go, oh my gosh, how did you do that? But it's all the same skills that are required. So I started to put these kind of magic concepts into place, um, we've done a tremendous amount of research over the last few years uh, in regards to the therapeutic use of magic in rehab. So, I mean, do you train the therapists? We do. Okay. Yeah. So you're actually training the, the therapist how to pass this on to their patients. That's right. So there was a usually... So you're not just entertaining patients. You are you, you're really using magic to rehabilitate people. Yes. You're giving them like physical therapy exercises that are magic tricks. Exactly. And here's what's really cool. So if you're in long-term therapy, you're doing therapy on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you're coming in and on Tuesday and Thursday, you're working on all of your therapeutic things in between, you get clients who will come in on Monday and they're going like, I am so glad I'm not through doing therapy today. I just get to learn a magic trick. Right. Because they don't think about it as therapy. Right. right? Great program. I had, a, a, <laughs> I had a grandfather say to me, and this is what really kind of sums it up. So he was, I was teaching him some magic tricks, and he goes, I'm so excited about this because my grandkids are coming to visit this weekend, and what would I rather say to them? Hey, watch Grandpa put these pegs in a board. Right. Or? Or let Grandpa show you a magic trick. Yeah. So his motivation to learn the trick was super high. And every time he performed, every time he practiced the trick, he was doing his therapy. He just didn't think about it as being therapeutic. That's why there's such a huge movement in ballet 
people in with now because it feels intentional. Right. I think there's that intentionality. Um, Gavin Jenkins, who is the director of the occupational therapy program here at UAB, is such, uh, I, I love Gavin because his core belief about occupational therapy goes back to that sense of occupation mm. and that sense of purpose, mm -hmm. right? All of us want to have, we have to be motivated and, and that motivation comes from being purposeful and, and fulfilling that sense of occupation. And if it's not, why would you do it? If there's, why, why would you do it? Yeah. I'd so, like to know how you all, how you two linked up. Wow. You know, so <laughs> when I was... Kim Kimberly. Yeah, sorry, Kevin. for the listeners. <laughs> for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> you, two, you can see me pointing. <laughs> I think, so when I was traveling with the Illusion Show, mm -hmm. Um, the Alice Stevens Center booked me in to do the Illusion Show mm -hmm. at, at the center. And at that point, I don't think that we were really engaged as deeply as I am right now right. in the other aspect of our work. And maybe we did maybe one day? We went, in, we went to a number of schools with special education programs. Okay. And so at that time when I was doing a lot of education here, mm -hmm. I was, you know, connected into our school systems, and so I reached out to all of our special education programs, and he came out and worked with all different types of children. Um, and again, it's the beauty of watching the in these particular cases. It's the beauty of seeing a child who doesn't get to do a lot of celebrating, and ha sometimes, you know, if they're dealing with different physical disabilities or maybe mm. some cognitive disabilities or impairments um, by learning these tricks and then being able to present and perform a trick for their classmates and there is joy on that <laughs> child's face and you see all of the teachers and the aides who work with them and they're surprised and they cheer on the child. It's a beautiful moment but that was just kind of that was that my aha moment of this is incredible. Magic's totally relatable, right? I mean, when you think about <clears throat> art forms, some people might say, well, you know, I'm not a dancer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? And there may not even be that intrinsic motivation to want to be a dancer, uh -huh. although I would love to do Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, singer. A lot of people are like, oh, I'm just not very musical. I can't really carry a tune. But everybody's kind of intrigued by a magic trick. You tap that really innate curiosity in somebody, and when you say to them, you want to learn how to do this? You don't ever have anybody go, oh, I'm just really not a magician. Right. <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that. No, before. they're like, yes, yeah, 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 well, yeah. You're sharing the secret. Yeah, I want to learn how to do this. And that sharing the secret brings them in. Yes. to your, and I think that's what's so powerful when we work with the patients, when we work with, with the kids. So there's kind of two different programs. There's what we call the healing of magic, which is this healthcare-based sort of approach of using uh, magic tricks as an intervention in rehab. And then we have another program called Hocus Focus. And Hocus Focus is the same application of magic tricks, but used in an educational setting instead of in a hospital setting. Does that help with, like... ADD and ADHD It does. And it does. So I work mostly with that ADD, ADHD, okay. autism, okay. kids with social-emotional disturbances, kids with intellectual disabilities or some sort of physical impairment. So every trick that's in the protocol 
it can easily be adapted to the person's abilities. Mm -hmm. So it, it can, if, if you want to make it really hard, I can make it really hard. But if you want it to be kind of easy, I can make some adaptations so that person who may not have the same set of skills as the other person does can still be successful with the mm -hmm. trick. And anytime you give somebody the ability to do something that the normal able-bodied person can't do, like a magic trick. It can be such a tremendous boost to their self-esteem, oh, totally. their self-confidence, and that thing that 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 Kimberly was just talking about about this. You know, when you see them get up in front of their classmates, or you see them get up in front of of some of their um, some of the other clients that there are, some of the other patients that are in their group, and they perform the trick, and they do it successfully by themselves, there is this sense of accomplishment that permeates every single part of their body. You see them stand a little taller and their, you know, their chests are out a little further. And they, some of the, these guys, especially some of the guys we work with at the Exceptional Center, when they take their bow at the end of the trick, it's a deep, rich sort of bow. Like, you know, it's not just a little, it's like, yes, like I am on the stage and I've just done this amazing thing. And so the value of that is that we found if you can motivate them around this, then that motivation can transfer into other areas of their lives. The skills that they learn by using a magic trick are easily transferable to the skills that they do every single day. If you can manipulate a paperclip, then you can manipulate a pencil or your fork or your spoon or a makeup brush. You can manipulate all of those things. So the skills tr are transferable. And we think that's really, really important. And that's something that, you know, small victories in terms of these children and their families cannot be taken for granted whenever, you know, they never get a win. And for right. long periods of time, they're right. like, where is my win? And we've got this little claw machine in Children's Harbor, and these kids go, come back every day and have just, <laughs> their rooms are just filled with baby babies. And it's just because they wanted, they had a small win. And yeah. like it means something to them, so like Absolutely. I can see that it just totally permeates into the rest of their life if they can just get a little win every day. I think something that yeah. you said earlier really struck home too is like when you're talking about a child or an individual with a disability or a debilitating injury, you're not just talking about that individual. Mm -hmm. You're talking about everybody that they touch. So the family, the extended family, mm -hmm. the caregivers that are involved, everybody's impacted by that. And so many times if you're a, a child in a family and you're the child with a disability, siblings often feel kind of neglected mm -hmm. because that child is getting a great deal of attention. So in that kind of a setting, we can come in uh, and we can do magic and we can teach both Absolutely. both of them That's the great. magic trick. Yeah. And so it's a way for them to reconnect as siblings and not mm -hmm. just as somebody who's sick and somebody who's not. Right. It's just a brother and sister or a sister and sister or a brother and brother and we're gonna do this activity together. Well, you've got such obvious passion for yeah. it, and, and the, the personality that comes through is that you're also a very caring, loving, and sharing kind of person um, to share the gift and pass that gift on to other people. You know, there's so, often, you mentioned it earlier, but a lot of times when you see magician magic acts, you, you feel like something's being withheld, <laughs> and you're actually sharing and teaching some of these things, and so, you know, children get to learn something that they're like, Wow, and and then they get to share that, you know, show that to someone else and feel special, and that that's really amazing. I mean, I, I love it. Such a huge gift to the medical community as well. Treating the whole patient and the family and mm -hmm. the 
social aspect is, you know, really frequently overlooked in the medical field. Um, and, you know, I mean, not a knock against physicians but they're, and nurses. They're just focused on the task at hand. And, and we've gotten very good clinically or, uh, you know, medically with treating illnesses, but we've, we've left the patient behind, yeah. the person behind, really, is what we've left. And so, you know, what all of y'all are doing, actually all three of y'all are really working in areas that, that are treating the whole picture and bringing everybody involved into the, into the treatment process and, and into the, the caring process. So I think that's what's so great. valuable mm-hmm. about, about what Kimberly does, mm-hmm. this whole concept around arts and medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the arts have been, have been a part of every civilization, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they are a grounded part of who we are. Our arts define us as a culture. They define us as a people. You know, I've had that privilege of, I've just visited my 50th country. Uh, uh, six weeks ago, I, I had the privilege of working in Russia for a couple of weeks with the disability population there. Wow. And so I get to see how art is connected in each of these cultures to each of these people. Our stories are told through the arts that are such a part of who we are. And yet when we come to the way we're going to teach and the way we're going to heal, we pull those things that are so connected to us back, the things that make us human, that artistic part of us, that creative part of us. We just pull that back inside. We're like, we're not going to do that. We have to teach to the test. You right. have to be able to pass that test. Mm. You know, and right. you need to get better. Right. Well, why is it that we can't take that part of us that that's at the core of all that we are, that artistic, creative part of us, and say, let me teach you science through the arts. Mm-hmm. Let me teach, let me help you heal by bringing in this artistic intervention that allows you to be creative and expressive and to deal with your pain, not to hide your pain and not to disguise your pain, but give you a way to deal with your pain Mm -hmm. and to kind of resolve that within yourself. And somehow we've just kind of pulled those things back. Yeah, Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because also the arts have always been a part of healing traditions. And so, and it continue to be in traditional cultures throughout the world. So in different areas of, um, you know, the continent of Africa and Australia, and of course our Native American um, people in this country and um, in Asia, that the traditional cultures that still exist today still use the arts in healing traditions. And of course it wasn't until I guess the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, with the discovery of germs, you know, that we sanitized everything away. And so, you know, that's when hospitals, of course, came um, very sterile environments. But but if you look at, at human beings and, you know, nature is so important to, you know, there are all those studies that come out about, you know, how being in nature is so healing for us and, you know, along with the arts. And there's there was a study done um, I think in the 1980s, that showed people who were recovering from, I'm not going to say which kind of surgery, but recovering from or an illness, those that had a view of, of nature, of a tree or something outside of their window, actually healed faster than those who wow. didn't. Wow. So it just, it goes back to, of, to who we are as, as human beings and what we need as humans to be able to heal. Um, because, of course, we know that cutting-edge therapies and surgery and medications are all so important, 
but also just going back to what we need as, as human beings. Mm-hmm. And again, tapping into to nature, tapping into, um, you know, healing environments and, and, and all the, and art and those things that, that are a part of who we are and who we've always been as, as humans, that, you know, that we can have an environment for optimal healing and, and of course, preventative medicine as well. I agree I like- totally. I think you both hit such a great point when you were talking about the humanity aspect. Our science, which we love and we appreciate because it's allowed us to live longer and to live better, but sometimes we've gotten so we've gotten so far ahead with our science that we've forgotten our humanity. Mm-hmm. And with and that's what we that's what keeps us grounded, you know. It's great that we're living longer and living better. But if we're live, but if we're not really living, if it's not really a, a life, then then where do we find our value? And I think mm-hmm. that's where the arts are mm-hmm. such a critical part of what we do. And I like what you said about how hospitals, you know, they're sterile environments. <laughs> and you know, I would argue, and a lot of people would, that when a lot of times when people are thinking about art or fine art. Those are sterile environments that sometimes, or we created a sterile environment and an environment that doesn't always accept and it discriminates against. And that's one thing you'll hear a lot is that, you know, illness doesn't discriminate. And when you are, if you've got all these Mm. illness populations together, you've got all kinds of socioeconomic uh, demographics there. And art serves as like a social cohesion there and it can really help bridge socioeconomic boundaries and kind of get people on the same page and so you're not in this cathedral of art that's not accessible or you can't go you're not invited and it just kind of brings it down so it's a you're going back to humanity that's a brilliant analogy off mic we were talking a minute ago about you're growing up and and you were talking about how your parents supported you in this tell us a little bit more about that i I can honestly say i have the greatest parents in the world and i know everybody (laughs) says that but i i really do have the greatest parents in the world so i'm for those of you who are listening i'm not a big guy um i still i'm like i push it when i say i'm five foot six but i say that because (laughs) it makes me feel better i'm like five foot six and about 140 pounds um, I played all of those things. Like, right, I did, I did baseball and football and all that stuff when I was in, in elementary school and junior high. And around, oh, I don't know, seventh grade, all of my friends started to grow, and I didn't. And, and it wasn't fun playing football anymore when, you know, you were the football. It's just like, <laughs> it's not nearly as much fun. I started high school. Uh, I was four foot nine and weighed almost 90 pounds, 89 pounds. I graduated high school. I was five foot and 103. That's wow. when I went to college at five foot and 103 pounds. So yeah, you look at it. Yeah, I was a little guy, right? But magic was where I found my passion as a little kid. And my dad, who never said to me, "Come on, let's go out in the yard and let me throw you a football," or you know, "Let me give you this." catcher's mitt and let me throw some balls to you because he knew that wasn't where my strength was. Instead, we would go out to the shed, to the workshop, and my dad would help me sit down and we would build magic tricks. And he would help me. I still own, I think, everything that my dad helped me build, I still have in my magic room. And I I suspect he wasn't inherently interested in magic himself. This is something he realized he saw you had a passion for. 
And so he went with it and yeah. spent time with you and developed that, helped you develop that. Absolutely. I, don't, I, don't, I think is, my dad would not tell you that he ever wanted to grow up and be a magician. <laughs> but what a great thing for, for parents who are listening to, to hear. Um, I mean, supporting what your child does well. And you don't know that until you expose them to things. That's right. Instead of having them go down the path that you you have for them in mind. And it's difficult as a parent, right? I mean, you you do have your you know, your dreams of what your kid's going to be and you, you remember your childhood and so you're you thinking, "Oh, I'm going to help them do this or that." Um, but then it turns out, you know what? They don't like what you used to like. Right. They like something different. And so I think, you know, parents who are flexible with that and recognize, "Okay, they don't have to do what I did. Let's do what they want to do even though I may not have interest in it." Let's let's go there. One of the things Kimberly and I were talking about too is I think this population, this millennial sort of age or what they're whatever they're called now, (laughs) whatever this new generation is, they really have this um, this heart for service, right? They're not really so concerned about how much money. Not all of them. Some of them are obviously, but not all of them are concerned about how much money they're going to put away in their four hundred one k or how much they're going to get invested in their social security program, right? They're, they really do go through school and in their hearts, they're looking for a way to be significant in the world. They're looking for a way that they can make an impact on somebody's life. And, and that's hard when you're talking about their parents' generation, right? Who, who came through a time where it was important to save your money and it was important to have a purpose and you needed to know what you were going to do with the rest of yeah. your life. And now you look at your kids and you're like, well, I don't understand. Every generation, though, I guess says that. I don't understand why you're not thinking about these things. We value experiences. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Is that what it is? We value experiences. Because you do. You want to ex- experience that for yourself, right? You want that life-changing experience and you want to make you want to feel like that you've impacted somebody else's life and so that leads you oftentimes in directions that your parents don't understand and I'll speak from an artist's perspective I mean I know you can as well but my undergrad degree I have a bachelor of music in musical theater and so my dream was that I was gonna go and you know be a make it professionally as a musical theater performer. Well, you know, obviously that didn't happen. <laughs> Life happens, and so I ended up moving back to Birmingham. And, um, you know, and luckily my path took me to the Alice Stevens Center. And so when I started here 15 years ago, my eyes were open to the world of the arts, you know, in the back of the house or in the administrative office or you know to see what was possible not necessarily being a performer but the whole world of the arts and and so that is what suddenly drove me and so I went back I got two master degrees and I'm about to start a third one (laughs) in January because I because I love the arts so much and I realize that there's so many different avenues and again you can be another, I guess, millennial thing, but an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. and you you know, you just, so you can just create your own path. So yes, I got a Bachelor of Music degree, but it taught me so much, and now I'm doing other things, and so I think that is so important, because just because you get your degree in whatever thing that you're supposed (laughs) to do, or your parents (laughs) think you should, you know, I, I know another girl who, she's in her 20s um 
I used to see her a lot through our education programs and she was going to be pre-med but she was also loved music and she's a brilliant person and um, but she just couldn't that just wasn't her path her heart wasn't in it and so I think she is another one of those people who just kind of took different things and put them together <laughs> and created her own path but it didn't it wasn't originally what her family thought it should be for her but you know, it is. It is. It's important to to follow where your heart is because even if you don't, and you're going to follow the where the money is, you know, you may find yourself getting burned out pretty fast, or yeah. or just not being very good at it. <laughs> and so, you know, <laughs> you, or, you've hit a, a, I think an important topic too for for students who are coming out of school trying to figure out how do I make this work for me. Um, pursuing your passion again, you know, there are a lot of niches within that passion as you just described mm -hmm. that you can find I mean so you may not know what it's going to be and mm -hmm. so I tell people you know it, try not to make it a destination you know it's a journey and you know go down the path that you feel passionate about and you'll find branches along that path and you'll that's figure what we were just talking about and so um, but if you don't go down that path you're going to you're probably not going to be real happy right. so yeah, I think it's very important uh, it's hard to reassure you know, parents about mm -hmm. that when they're like, well, you know, they've got to make a living. How are they going to make a living? I'm like, I don't, I can't answer that for you, mm -hmm. but, but I can tell you people are more likely to make a living doing something they love to do mm -hmm. um, than something they don't love to do. They're more likely to be successful at it. So, you know, you got to include that in, yeah. your, in your journey. So, well, all three of you are inspiring in the health uh, care field. And so I really appreciate all of you coming in and helping me out with this podcast because this is um, wonderful stuff. And I hope that listeners can uh, catch Kevin Spencer sometime at one of his acts or look online and, and, and see how they're doing what they're doing with integrating performing arts and medicine and, and maybe apply it in your area um, uh, so that uh, more people can, can benefit from it. So, Kevin, thank you so thank much you for being here. Thank you very much. Kimberly, thanks so much Thank for you. getting in contact with me about this and setting this up. This is really spectacular. Really. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been great. Haley, as always, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. To find out more about the topics we discussed, um, you can go online to spencermagic.com, uabmedicine.org slash arts, childrensharbor.com, and alicestevens.org that's A-L-Y-S-S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S.org To listen to Dr. Mark Westfall live, check out O Brother Radio on Birmingham Mountain Radio, 107.3 FM in Birmingham, 97.5 in Tuscaloosa, at bhammountainradio.com or on the free BMR app. Join in with your questions and comments on Twitter at Lockamy Brothers. <laughs>